Well, good evening, everybody. This is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, we are delighted to have our good friend Charles Todd here with us. He's going to be talking about the brand new Bess Crawford novel called The Cliff's Edge. And just, I think, today we got our autographed copies. Here we go. And um, I will go ahead and put a link in the comments field on YouTube and Facebook should you wish to purchase a signed copy. Um, and if you have if you have questions for Charles, go ahead and type them in, and Barbara will bring me back on screen uh, towards the end of the hour, and I'd be happy to ask any questions you might have. So, Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. So, I will hold up the book, which I think has a really evocative cover. This is the 13th in the Best Crawford series. Yes, it is. She's passed through the war, where she, her role was as a nurse over in the battlefront. There I went and touched my face, just the way we were talking about. Um, and inevitably, inevitably, Bess has to think about um, what her life is going to be because it was filled with purpose during the war years. And what does that mean now? But before we do that, Charles, how, how has this been for you talking about this book without your mom? I, it took a while. Uh, but the, uh, a game of fear had to be, uh, copy edited and then proofed for publication. And then Caroline and I turned in a rough draft in July. She passed in August of 2021. And so there was a lot of work involved getting it accepted by the publisher and going through all the various machinations you go through before it actually is a book on the shelf. And uh, yet it was oddly good because I was busy and I was busy doing something that was very important to both of us. So it it had its rough moments, but it's amazing when you have deadlines and certain things that have to be done, you have to bear down and get it done. And I knew that that would have been important to her. So I jumped right in and did my best. And now uh, this week, I'm hoping to turn the manuscript in for the next Rutledge. Wonderful. But do you know the last event that you and your mom and I did together, which was in July, and it was for Bess, and then she died the next month. So, yes. you know, um, and, and she was so cute. She always had a certain amount of trouble working out Zoom in the house, you know, <laughs> the yes. or the sound or whatever it was. It was always kind of challenging. I mean, she was here at the bookstore so many times and we had I was thinking I don't know I don't think you were with no I know you weren't with her she came out the year that the desert botanical garden had its first yes she thoroughly there. enjoyed that well she loved it so much while we were there because the event started at seven and the sunset was coming and it was I think towards late February and she said to me do we have to be on time <laughs> for the event and I said no I said, you know, we could stay until the sunsets and really admire this. So I called the store and I said, tell everybody to hang on. Uh, we'll be there after a while. So we we got there, I guess, about 25 minutes late. People were sitting kindly in their seats. 
and your mom waxed on about how wonderful the exhibit was and all. She had such a good time. She was always curious, you know, that's one of the things I loved about Carolyn. She was always curious and, um, and wanted to be pleased. She was never, you know, sour or cranky. She really just wanted to be pleased. Uh, that characteristic and her strong belief in paying it forward. Mm -hmm. uh, there are countless times we've been at conventions. I used to pick on Caroline because I'd go walking down the hall and here she is sitting in a chair with all these young ladies sitting around listening to every word she has to say. And uh, I'm like, come on, mom, can't you share a little? <laughs> but uh, it, it thrilled her when she could spend some time with young authors who were trying to break into the business and help them any way she could. And uh, that and her, she was a Southerner. There's no question about it. Now, that's absolutely true. She was very generous to other authors. Even when, when I was still editing and publishing books, two or three times, she you know, was kind enough to read one of the books and give it a quote and all. So it's really, there's a big hole without Carolyn. But I also was thinking when I read this that, you know, inevitably, Bess has to come to some resolution about her personal life and her professional life. And um, I sense... I sense a, a movement in this book. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but um, I think that it, that she's poised to have to make a couple of discoveries and decisions. Would that be a fair statement? I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, we face that with Rutledge after uh, Game of Fear mm -hmm. and with his new role and uh now the I was saying to my agent Lisa Gallagher that it, it I think of the two Bess is going to be the most difficult for me to try to reproduce because even though we work so hard on it together, her unique intuition really came out in the voice of Bess Crawford. And uh, yet she is in a pickle right now. Yeah, she is. Well, your mom had a background in romance writing. And I think that's one reason that the characters in both your series have always been so alive. You know, I mean, and you do have to move them forward. Rutledge couldn't stay forever in his position at the yard. And Bess, you know, I mean, it was really hard for women after the First World War, because for many women, that was the first time they ever had like a real job, um, you know, where they were away from their parent or husband or whoever supervision and doing work. And then and it happened after the Second World War, too. If you talk to some of the people, for example, the women who worked at Bletchley um, and it happened in this country, you know, when the war was over and men came home and um there were women who, who were doing useful work and suddenly it wasn't available. So Bess has resigned from Queen Alexandra's nursing, hasn't she? Do I have that right? She did that in an Irish hostage. Right, which was the one before this, the one that right. you and your mom and I talked about in July of 2021. 
Um, so that was the first step towards, um, you know, what was she going to do with her life? She could have just gone home and lived with her parents for a while, waited for a suitor to come along, um, you know, whatever. So did you and your mom really talk about what was going to happen to Bess, or was it kind of organic as you were moving along? It was a little bit of both. We would talk in general terms about the fact that we were getting to a place in Bess's life where some things were going to have to naturally progress after the war was over. And in many ways, the Cliff's Edge was after an Irish hostage and the situation with Simon, Bess was in a position where Simon was not having anything to do with anybody. He pretty much closed himself up in his cottage and was not around very much. And uh, naturally, that was driving Bess up a wall. And so when Melinda came along with an opportunity to go to York. She was hoping to go there anyway to see a friend. Uh, but In Melinda, right. right. Yeah. Uh, Melinda had, was a friend of Lillian, who was the companion to Lady Beatrice. Ostensibly, the correspondence from Melinda was you go up there, you convince her she really needs a quality nurse there with her in the home after her gallbladder surgery. And then you stop by and see your friend and come home. Sounds simple, not even enough to write a book about. But when Bess arrives in actually Lady Beatrice lived uh, about 30 miles northwest of York. Uh, when Bess arrives, Lady Beatrice is just absolutely inconsolable. She wants Bess to be that nurse. And I think we all know those kinds of people that once they have their mindset on something, and especially someone from Lady Beatrice's background, who's pretty much accustomed to dictating terms, uh, she decides that Bess will do just nicely, thank you, and she can stay and take care of her when she gets through her surgery, and Bess was a little taken aback by all this, and so finally she realizes that she's been outfoxed, so to speak, and uh, says, all right, I'll make the best of it, but you know, first opportunity, I'm heading back to Somerset and going back about my business, and everything goes according to plan. Uh, Lady Beatrice goes in, has her operation, uh, Bess goes and sees her friend in York and they're putting things together, making ready for her to be released from the hospital when suddenly they get a call that uh, Gordon Neville, her 
great nephew uh, had fallen off the edge of a cliff. And Let's stop right there because we don't want to go too far here. But no, we don't. No, but there are a whole lot of things. The things get really complicated from there. They really do. There's so many things to talk about in, in what Charles has just been saying. For one thing, we could talk about landscape. One of the things I've always loved about the Rutledge and uh, the Best series is how much the landscape, whether it's the village or whatever it might be, is a an essential part of the book. It's almost like a character. Certainly in the Rutledges, you've taken us on a tour all around England, and you know every Rutledge has a particular, very strong background. And this one is York, and it's not just you know Yorkshire as a as a culture and all, but the actual geography, the fact that it has crumbling rock, um, plays a role. The fells in York are not as tall as the ones in the Lake District, but they're very unique in yeah. that they are shaped very differently. They're not your standard mountaintop. And as a result, they actually have different names for the different mountains that make up what they call in England the fells. And uh, that whole concept of the small rivers, the farming land, the sheep, the dealing with the outcroppings and everything and climbing up to places so that you could look out and see where your sheep are uh, plays a critical role in defining the book because not only are you sort of captured in that house, but you're captured by the or held captive by the landscape well you are not only that you know because of the nature of these rock promontories and all you know it's hard to decide whether somebody fell by accident or whether somebody was in fact pushed i mean you get cliffside settings in a lot of british fiction you know and you're never sure you know did the guy go over the cliff uh, you know, did he throw himself over the cliff? Did the cliff crumble away? Did somebody give him a shove? And, you know, you can you can replicate. I've spent a lot of time in Yorkshire. I've actually chased sheep in Yorkshire and driven. There are a lot of really tiny roads in Yorkshire. Yes, um, there are. Which I, which I have driven. And, you know, it's a, it's a very different part of England than Somerset, that's for sure. Um, but I love the fact that, um, that that's an important part of the best book. But the other thing I thought you really brought out, Charles, I mean, we are not two decades or barely two decades into aspirin being commercially available as a medicine. And, you know, Lady Beatrice is having today, you would check into the hospital probably at seven in the morning, they would take out your gallbladder and they would, you'd be home. You'd yes. be home for tea. And, you know, this is a production. This is Lady Beatrice, you know, has to go and stay in the hospital. There's all these ahead of time. She has to have careful. She, she does have, a, I think, a heart issue. Isn't that part yes. of it? Right. So, you know, she's more delicate. But nonetheless, there is this, you know, whole like two week or something arc involved in this gallbladder surgery, you know. But also, as we read through the book, we realize how little there really is 
there was practically a caravan moving her. Well, there was, but you know, but thinking about about what best can actually offer her and other people and thinking about the state of medicine, there wasn't a whole lot um, available in, in modern terms. I mean, you know, just keeping wounds sanitized, um, pain control, you know, all the rest we, of it. Uh, we were traveling from Trieste back to Venice and stopped at the battlefield between the Austro-Hungarians who were up on the hill and the Italians and they had covered trenches so they had pretty well survived a lot of the wear and tear but also at that site they had a medical museum hmm. and the thing that struck me going through that museum was the fact that so many of the instruments hadn't changed from the instruments that they were using in the American Civil War. Yeah. If you look at a doctor's kit or a nurse's kit, but primarily the doctor's kit and the different implements that they used, they were not that different. And uh, there were all kinds of gruesome operations being done, and a lot of them were done with no anesthesia, no pain medication, no. Well, that's right. They actually had saws because one of the only yes. things you could do for gangrene was basically to cut off the limb and hope that it hadn't, you know, moved any farther. So, well, and the, the other problem was. A lot of times when you see World War II movies or World War I movies, you see these people laying on the ground and the machine guns sitting there. Well, there's a reason for that. They were aiming for the legs. Yeah. Right. So they couldn't move. One soldier gets injured. It takes two soldiers to drag him back. Yeah. And it, it was done intentionally so they could sweep the ground and wound the legs. And so a lot of the amputations that came out of that particular aspect of the war were, were phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, you have to get yourself to realize it's only been a century, essentially, since this book took place with a couple of years more. But um, that kind of surgery today that Lady Beatrice is going to have, you know, would be almost a non-event. And, you know, is this huge production um, in the book. And I think, you know, you have to accept that and you have to recognize how far medicine has come in such a short time. And I mean, the Victorians, we know, you know, actually had access to a lot of drugs. I mean, they could swill laudanum and, you know, um, mm -hmm. Thomas de Quincey, the opium eater. I mean, you could buy you could buy drugs for teething children. You know, I think they used to rub, you know, some sort of opium or gin or something on, on teething children's gums to keep them from crying. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a step forward from in the 18th century. The primary anesthesia was alcohol. Right. Then. And then in the 19th century, you know, because of India, Afghanistan, all the rest of it, correct. Um, they learned about about opium. And the so, old the old trick with the children was you basically took whiskey and rubbed it on their 
oh, was it when they were okay. teething. Right. So, you know, in, but it's interesting that Bess never seems to have much in the way of opium available. It, you know, she has aspirin. Well, primarily in this particular venue, she doesn't have the kind of access that a doctor would necessarily have access to, number sure. one. And number two, uh, someone like her would not be permitted to deal in those types of medications when she was in the hospital, fine. But uh, right. just a former combat field nurse being said, well, here, have some opium in case you need it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I could carry it along. Well, anyway, as uh, you know, that it, it's really interesting, you know, to see, and, and Lady Beatrice, indeed, is one of those kind of um, amazingly powerful women. I mean, she's an aristocrat. She's used to people doing as she wishes. And, and instead of ordering people about, she just kind of flows right over them. I mean, you know, she's invincibly yes. polite and, you know, all the rest. And, and Bess can't find any way to withstand that. You know, if, if Lady Beatrice had really been ugly to her or, you know, whatever, Bess maybe could have pushed back, but it's nearly impossible to... Well, suddenly there's a dressmaker there making dresses for her. Yeah. I mean, she didn't bring enough clothes, you know, to stay. So Lady Beatrice rules with an iron rod, but also kindness and generosity. And so there we are. Anyhow, eventually they move on to a smaller village because Lady Beatrice, right, godson, if I remember this right, is involved. The family of her godson yes. is where a death has occurred. And then we aren't going to be able to tell you a whole lot more about that except that we are we are mired in a we're in kind of, we're one of those sort of close circle things the agatha christie thing where it is barely under the surface there had been some disagreement and bad blood yeah between the caldwells and the nevilles but they kind of glossed over it in a way and suddenly the situation on the cliff made that entire situation boil up to the surface. Yeah. And as a result, people are separating into various camps and we're just thanking the good Lord that there were enough rooms in that house. Well, you know, that's it. I mean, everybody was forced to stay together, whether, you know, when feelings were running high, it wasn't like they could turn across the street to the Marriott or something and check in. Well, there. and the, the poor was, it was Mrs. Neville's birthday and everybody was coming in from Heather and Jan to pay their respects and attend her birthday party. Uh, it wasn't just that they happened to show up. Right. They no, were, that's true. They were intentionally invited in to take part in this celebration for Mrs. Neville. And unfortunately, that forced the issue to come to the surface. But that's why you had the two different camps suddenly in the same house. And then... Inspector Wade didn't want anybody going anywhere until he sorted everything out the way he thought it should be. 
Yeah. And there's some very long-standing simmering resentments or relationships that, um, you know, it all kind of comes to the surface in, in a cauldron like that. So anyway, it's a very interesting story and um, we're not going to be able to tell you how it comes out. But um, but best it is a result of all can find this. out when they buy the book and read it. That's right. And remember, we have autographed copies right here. Uh, but at the end of it, there's Bess. I mean, she does survive it. She herself is not, you know, the immediate target of, of a killer or whatever. And she still has to figure out what she's going to do next. So one of my questions is, are you, in fact, going to be able to write another Bess and tell us what's, are we all going to wonder forever what happens? My first obligation was to write an Ian Rutledge book. And as I said, it will be turned in this week to my agent. Who knows? They, they could say to me, oh, it's not the same. It's no good. <laughs> How did you get your name on this book? <laughs> and uh, that would uh, pretty much decide what goes on from there in the meantime while they're doing all that uh i as soon as i get this book and i have a short story that's due uh in march and then uh, i'm going to uh begin to tackle best not literally but no i know what you mean but you know i think your readers deserve if, you know, a final book, if 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 it's only one more, um, was some sort of, you know, we followed Beth faith, faithfully. Um, and I would be personally really disappointed not to have, you know, some sort of conclusion to her well, journey. There's so much involved here. Uh, Beth is at a fork in the road, so to speak. Bess and Simon are at a fork in the road uh, to, I'm not so much interested in trying to take a book and end it happily ever after and they ride off into the sunset. But I am very interested in attempting to explore where she takes her career next and the decisions that she makes. And uh, a lot of that will be influenced by things that happen in the future. And so I'm more interested in actually tackling those issues and carrying on in another book if they say all right that's acceptable then you know at some point in time let's put it this way um i'm not going to stop writing and i am definitely not going to leave Bess in the lurch well, i wasn't thinking of her in the lurch and i wasn't even thinking about her personal life so much as you know she was so dedicated to nursing and you know learned so much and came so far 
I don't really want to see her just retiring home to Somerset to do the odd gardening and you know, have an occasion. Do you really see Bess retiring no, to Somerset no, and gardening? Bess. I do not. And also her parents have never been that sort, you know, and they too, their lives have changed. You know, her father, um, who has been a professional army man for, as we know, because of your um, earlier story, I think it was, the, was it the novella where we went back to India? Yes, hanging at dawn. That's right, yep. And so we learned about Bess's father. We learned about Simon as a young, you know, as a boy, um, the whole bit. And so- That was a fascinating book. I I don't mean to digress, but to, to each chapter in the book is written by a different character in the book. Right. And- uh that was a lot of fun that's a wonderful story too you know i got hooked years and years ago on the far pavilions although i think oh, that yes. MK should have made it two books i mean you know it didn't need to be an 1100 page wonder it needed to go <laughs> to a certain point and then the whole afghan story you know should have been um i've always thought a separate book but nonetheless if you read it you you know you you really learned a lot about or at least her version of things that went on in British India under the Raj and up in that country and all and so I love the fact that you revisited it in uh, the hanging tree. Caroline always had a love for India and uh, I am so happy that she was able to go and spend time in India. Uh, when she graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, she was supposed to go to India to teach English. And uh, because at that time, this was middle 50s they were having the language riots in india mm. and her trip to india was canceled and yet my mother always dreamed of going to india then of course my mother always dreamed of going to a lot of places and by golly she made her way to a lot of them she did she was a tremendous traveler i mean you spent Every year you went to England up until until COVID, but you also went to a lot of other places as well. Yes, and uh, Deanna and I went back to England this year. We spent uh, our time in, in Kent, Sussex, and then we went down all the way to Brighton, ah. which was wonderful to see. Got to spend some time in... Uh, George the Fourth, uh, right? The Royal Pavilion. The Royal Pavilion, right? That that says India, doesn't it? Well, the Royal Pavilion. I've spent a lot of time in the Royal Pavilion. I can talk to you about the chef in the kitchen and caramel, and I can talk to you about what is it? It looks as though something popped and went out to sea. I can't remember. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful stuff about writing, but I'm almost. Oh, Queen Victoria did not like that place at all. No, she didn't. But you know, I'm a walking Bible of Regency, so you know, I cut my teeth on Georgette here and whatever, and I'm finding it really interesting to see how Bridgerton has taken the Regency and stretched it. I mean, it's completely unrealistic, but at the same time, 
Very interesting. Um, Bridgerton is very entertaining, and it took it took some liberties, but it was sort of what if? Yeah. And I, so for that purpose, I was uh, I was absolutely there fascinated by it. Right. I was there for the clothes. I thought that, right. that, I mean, they were absolutely fabulous. And and of course they did it in Dublin because there isn't enough Georgian architecture available in England. So they filmed it in Dublin. But I mean, the architecture, the interior decoration of the rooms, one of the best Regency rooms I've ever been in is in a palace in St. Petersburg directly behind the Grand Hotel. I can't remember the name of it. But there was a huge fashion for Egyptian furniture and other stuff. Yes. It's all of Napoleon. And it really is this beautifully preserved Regency room. And I thought, wow, I've just walked into a Georgia hair novel right here at St. Petersburg, Russia. You're thinking well, of Peter Hoff. No, 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 not one of those. It's actually in St. Petersburg. It's not in the Hoffs. Um, the um, it's the a, Winter Palace, Catherine no. the Great's Winter Palace is in. Well, they're, they're outside St. Petersburg. They were destroyed in the war because they were on the other side, so to speak. This is right. I'd have to look it up, but it's right in the heart of St. Petersburg. And it is a palace. I mean, it was literally right behind the Grand Hotel. Um, you have to drive a long way to get to uh, the, the Pavelhof and the Peterhof. And the, oh, yes, uh, definitely. Um, but no, no, no. This was in the but city. But Catherine anyway. the Great's... Uh palace was right there on the river in fact the battleship Potemkin was right outside our hotel we stayed right on the river wow that's wonderful i mean i think st petersburg is a gorgeous city rob and i spent an entire i think it was eight days there as friends of the hermitage so we got to go to the museum every day and spend the day there doing all kinds of neat things before we had been there in the summer where we attempted to visit um, one of the, and the the Japanese tourists they they operate in what you would call a crocodile right you mm -hmm. can't you can't penetrate a Japanese tourist crocodile I mean if they're no. there you're toast so yes. Rob and I went to the Catherine Hoff and just abandoned hope of ever going inside and instead spent all our time in the gardens which were absolutely beautiful and that was one reason I said when we had a chance to go and spend a week in December. I picked December instead of October at the Catherine Hof. Um, there was nobody there. And so That's, we had a chance to go in and they opened up rooms and, you know, it was wonderful. We went in, the first time we went to Russia was in 1976. And it was in November. I saw the sunshine one time, one day, the entire time we were in Russia and, uh, or it was the Soviet Union then. Right. Uh, that was back during Brezhnev's time. And uh, the, it was cold. It was definitely cold. Cold and dark. I know. Yes. We called in December of 19, whenever it was, 16, I mean, 2016, when we were there. But anyway, I digress. Um, but, but you know, going back to our original point, Beth has had such a an unusual for a young woman of her of her class and so forth, being able to go and actually serve in, you know, as a nurse in the battlefields and take care of people and all the rest of it, you know, 
I'd, I'd just like to see how she kind of settles into whatever it is she's going to do. I, I agree with you. And uh, my position is I'm not going to give up on her yet. Good. Well, we can talk. We can <laughs> if we absolutely have to, we will collaborate. That'll work out well. I have other thoughts on that subject. So um, anyway, 13th best. And then um, with luck, we will see um, uh, Rutledge sometime this year or early next year. If everything goes, generally it takes a year from the time you turn it in to the time that it's a book on the shelf. And he normally came out in February. I mean, for years, he kind of yes. showed up in February. So February of 2024 would not be unreasonable. I, unfortunately, due to paper publishing, you know more about this than I do. Uh, it's been very difficult to get books published. But uh, the good thing that I <clears throat> understand is people still love the written page. Absolutely. I have to tell you that book sales keep going up. I mean, I've really been astonished um, at, at how people are still flocking to, you know, to printed books, you know, coming to events. You know, as you know, we stream all our live events and the mm -hmm. size of the audience is, is just amazing. Um, we've seen, we spoiled our, our local customers because in this really we've had a really rough winter for phoenix i mean it's pitiful compared to other places it's actually been like 40 and and had rain you know so yeah. phoenix rough is not really rough but i was so amused that after we had an event i think it was a couple of weeks ago we had a, a a nice turnout in the whole bit but it wasn't because it was a horrible night it was raining and it was miserable and the whole bit and the next day there was a couple in the store picking up their book and they looked at me and they said you know we really meant to come, but it was cold. So we just put on our jammies, <laughs> curled up, you know, so we could watch it instead. Cause you can watch them on, you know, on your, on your smart TV. You don't have to sit right. in front of a computer. The, the, you know, I live in Southeast Florida. Right. So yes, it, it actually dipped down to about 42 I know. And, and we're all in fur coats, right? It, absolutely. I you go outside, people are walking their dogs and they've got earmuffs and parkers yeah. and gloves. And the, tourists, and... the tourists are wearing <laughs> flip-flops and shorts. Absolutely. Really you can always tell the tourists. <laughs> it is indeed. So They're out on the beach wearing their swimsuits, and the rest of us are huddled up with our parkas on. It was like in the low 40s yesterday and, and the out one of the authors who was with us last night wrote me an outrage and said there are people in the pool she said they're just like popsicles she was huddled inside it was so funny <laughs> anyway patrick come join us we've lost the thread here so <laughs> you can add to this discussion no problem let's see here there we go Okay, I'm back. Um, yeah, it is actually really chilly outside. I just ran downstairs and it's 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 chilly. Yep. For us anyway, as you say. Balmy for the rest of the country, I'm sure. Um, it's currently 81 degrees. 81 degrees? Yes. Well, no. It's 47 or something here. Yeah. It, well, 
let me let me get the latest update you're in it florida right is, yeah southeast florida right okay. on the atlantic ocean uh the current temperature per my smartphone is it is 74 degrees i'll be darned wow amazing um yeah, a lot of a lot of the comments that are coming in, people are sharing their uh, stories about about your mom, which is really nice. You know, a lot of a lot of our customers that you know had the chance to meet both of you here at the bookstore over the years, and people are are sharing their stories, which is really neat. Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to have met both of you at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Didn't know your work at the time. Was there to meet Reese Bowen? I've loved your work ever since. So that's nice. Um, Reese is a great person as well as author. I've, Carol and Reese did at least one event together, I think, at this oh, yeah. Yes, uh, I did uh, an event. You were unavoidably detained or something, and Reese fell in and did a magnificent job. She always does. She's a wonderful It wasn't the viewer. same, but it was close. Well, actually, you were better off. I was probably traveling <laughs> somewhere. But anyway, Reese is, Reese is wonderful. Reese spends part of the year here in Arizona. And uh, we're very lucky to have her for as long as we get to keep her. Um, let's see. Karen, or Kiaran, I think, uh, says, Aloha from Hawaii. Um, you've already talked about this a little bit. But will Bess and Simon ever get together? Please, question mark. We're not saying <laughs> we never never I say think never. Caroline put it best when she said, "You know, we've introduced Rutledge to some nice, respectable young ladies, and he never decides to settle with one of them. It's kind of like my son." <laughs> uh huh. But you live long enough to do that. Now, come on. Absolutely. That's right. You just. We're a young bachelor. It took well, me a while to get there, but I think I did. finally did a good job. You do. Absolutely. Let's see. What else do we have here? Um, uh, oh, I, uh, Rita says Mary Anna Evans was also there um, at that event. Yeah, I think I remember this a few years ago. What else do we have here? Um Okay, Rita would like to know, I wonder what made you decide to do World War One versus World War Two. When I think about the two wars and their differences, the series would be so different, but more opportunities for Bess. Career-wise, uh, it would to a certain extent, although, uh, you know, we, in the United States, we proudly show the posters of Rosie the Riveter, but as soon as the men came home, that changed. World War One was very different, and one of the many reasons we chose England was the devastating loss of pretty much an entire generation of young men in that war. <clears throat> Compared to the United States, their losses were staggering, and uh, it was several things, but uh, let me be concise. Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw in their books on the 20th century said that World War I was the most pivotal event of the century, and we're still paying the price for decisions that were made during and after that war. The other thing is 
<clears throat> England really began to change from the Victorian Edwardian eras into becoming the modern Britain that we know today. Uh, yes, the aristocracy survived. It was the only one that survived after that war uh, in any true sense, but they came back England was in debt. They had taxes going up. People who were inheriting country homes couldn't afford to keep them up. And we, England lost a lot of its estates and everything. It was, a, it was a time of tremendous change for that country. And so naturally that in our view, gave us a lot of opportunities. And the other thing, quite simply, was in 1994, when we were working on a test of wills, nobody was writing about World War I. And the, the impact of not only the casualties and everything else, but shell shock and what it did to people and the... Uh, films that you see now of World War One veterans that just absolutely crumbled under the weight of shell shock, and yet, typically British, they survived. They managed to pull it together and survive and turn around thirty years later and do it all over again. That uh, I have always said. There's nothing against the, the greatest generation being those that fought in World War II. I'm 100% there. But I look back at my grandfathers who survived World War I, survived the influenza epidemic, survived the Depression, survived World War II, and yet still, if you look at the mark they left, whether it's the interstate highways that Eisenhower brought in or all the schools and public buildings that that generation was able to produce that lived long after they were gone is just absolutely amazing to me. So oh, it was a really pivotal time for women. Not only did they, you know, lose an extraordinary number of men, but many women, um, their whole normal course through life was deflected by the war. Absolutely. They had to go and do things, learn jobs. And, you know, we talked earlier about um, about that, that they. And some um, of those men didn't come home and take their old jobs back because they were buried in yeah. uh, Belgium and France. And so that really changed the role of women. Plus, they got the, the right to vote. Plus, right after the war, England changed its voting laws. All of a sudden, more of the common people, non-landowner type, were able to actually participate 
in elections. And it was a bold step to take for the English government. They didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, but the election went through and they they managed. They did have McDonald as the uh, socialist prime minister for a brief while, but they still toughed it through. And didn't a lot of the uh, a lot of the men who 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 did survive and come back, they faced pretty grim economic prospects when they returned, didn't didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah. Absolutely. But that was also true after Waterloo, the C.S. Harris series that I love so much, the Sebastian Sancier. England has never been great to its veterans. It's just, you know, we aren't we aren't either. Think about Vietnam. Think about what the people who fought in Vietnam, not voluntarily even. Um, what kind of thing they faced. Well, if you've ever been to Greenwich, you know that that was originally built as a soldier's home and sailor's home. And uh, eventually it got taken over by the upper crust. And, you know, your, your average soldier, there is one particular scene, and I'm not going to go into it, but when uh, Bess is driving through York, where we kind of drove that point home. And uh, also in uh, Casualty of War, how all these men came back, but they were no longer able to keep jobs, either physically or mentally. Anything else, Patrick? Yeah, there's a question about, I mean, you've talked a little bit about research, but I mean, at this point, you must have like an immense personal library uh, covering this period. <laughs> are you still, I mean, but it is endless, you know, are you still finding little kind of little human details that say, ah, you know, we haven't actually written about this particular thing? Um, oh, see, that's the one thing I Barbara and I were talking briefly before we started about how Caroline was always curious and she ingrained that in me. I, I think learning is a lifelong endeavor. Whatever type of learning you tend to lean towards, in my case, I started out being interested in things that went boom and wars and battles and generals and all that and then as i grew older i started saying to myself why why were these things happening and that branched out from there and then with uh, my mother's background primarily in uh, english history but with caroline she knew <laughs> so much uh, my mother and father both exposed me to books at a very early age. I, I still have my uh, juvenile library membership card. I, when I was three, they told me I had to sign my name to get a card. And I went home and practiced and practiced and practiced and came in and was able to sign my name and get my juvenile library card boy, I, I was something. And uh, books are always fascinating to me. Talking to people is always fascinating to me. And also the, I, 
unfortunately you don't see it that much anymore but my mother's father was a true storyteller and i think that more than anything else has shaped both of our lives because he would sit out on the porch at night and tell stories and i could tell you that story right now and it wouldn't mean anything it was the way he told that story and the certain stories that i would ask him to tell again tell me about when the train went across the railroad tracks and the coal fell off the coal cart tell me about that and he would go into it with some variations on the theme at its heart writing is telling a story that's why caroline and i worked so very hard to make sure that what we put on paper spoke with one voice you didn't need to be cluttered up with well okay this is chapter two all right this is charles and this is this you needed to tell a story that's what we were there to do and that is what i tried to live up to now since you had such a close obvious relationship over these years do you find that when you're writing now you can kind of like hear her her feedback you know how she would respond to a scene is that kind of deeply ingrained in your mind it is and it isn't because there are many times when out of natural instinct i pick up the phone you know i'm not sure how we're going to handle this what do you think and uh, you don't have that and you try to make the best decision that you think she would have been happy with and that's why it's so important to me to complete this work and you know if they come back to me and say no or no <laughs> that's fine but i will know that i put everything i had into putting out another novel and i can't go back and say well you know if i'd spent more time or if i'd done this i did the very best i could and i i'm pretty pleased with the story well i'm really delighted to hear that charles it's a that's a big undertaking, but you know, it's also a way of working through grief. So it's I'm therapeutic. Sure it definitely is therapeutic. But all right. Anything else, Patrick? I don't think so. I think we've covered just about everything all here. Right. Well, Charles, it's been a real yeah. pleasure to spend another hour with you. I saw Absolutely. you over in the flesh. But you know, let's we'll stay in touch, see how Rutledge and Bess are coming along and um get you back out here one way or another well we're going to san diego for BoucherCon. oh good well um i will be there so we'll get a chance to see you there you know absolutely looking forward to it both of you all take care thank you very much don't forget we still yeah. have some autographed copies of the cliff's edge um i don't know patrick do we have any other earlier books by by the times yeah. yeah we do we, we have... probably do because they visit us, us regularly with all of their books. So if you're interested, 
Huh? I think we have at least four or five earlier titles. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. Anyway. Okay. Didn't, what was it, 98 when I came out the first time? Boy, I don't remember exactly. It yeah, wasn't for Test of Wills. Was it a leap year? <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, we have a long history together. That's for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And so, uh, um, you and Patrick take care and thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure. So much. See you soon. Stay in touch. Good night, Good everybody. everybody. Thanks for joining. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.